All right, good morning. Uh, John was not lying. We, that was us wrestling in the parking lot, so uh, I'm not going to tell you who won because we got tired immediately and stopped. It was exhausting. <laughs> so, yeah, shout out to the UW wrestling team. You all just very quickly made the list of people who could probably kill me in under three seconds. <laughs> That's a super long list, by the way. It's like everybody but infants and squirrels and... Squirrels are mean, so that's, that's also true. Uh, welcome to week two of Stuck in Our Heads, uh, the songs that play and repeat. If you're familiar with me at all, if you've been around Heartland at all, you know we're not going to get to Scripture for a few minutes because I cannot pass up any opportunity to talk about 90s music. And we're in a series called Stuck in Our Heads, Music is Stuck in Our Heads, Scripture. I was like, well, of course we're going to talk about 90s music. I read a while ago that whatever music someone hears at about the age of 14 is the music that most, most marks them and sticks with them for the rest of your life. So whatever musical taste you had at the age of 14, on average, is when is the type of music you're going to like forever. And then everything else that comes out, you're like, what are the kids listening to these days? Let's go back to that. So a couple things about that. First of all, if you were born in 2009, 2008, this is your year. Okay, so get excited. Lock, lock in on that. Uh, also, for me, uh, I was 14 in 1998. And it was, it was literally the summer I fell in love with music. So as we're talking about things that get stuck in our head, uh, I want to talk about some songs that are oftentimes stuck in my head, maybe your head. And these are all songs that came out in 1998. I had a heck of a time trying to edit down this list of all the incredible music that came out in 1998. So I want to remind us of all of these classic songs. I don't know if you're familiar with the, worm, uh, the term earworm. Is that a f- the term? Okay, good. You all have heard that? I brought it up in our staff meeting, and people are like, that's gross. And I'm like, it's a thing. It's a statement. Okay, so that's the term for songs that get stuck in your head is they're earworms because it's gross. I know, but they wiggle in, and then they get stuck forever. So um, here are some songs that uh, all came out in 1998, the year I fell in love with music, that are, are earworms. I was going to show the, the album covers for each one. But album covers in the 90s were weird. So I started looking through them, and I'm like, I can't show this in church. And so anyway, just, just imagine. So here's a couple. And, and you know, I, normally you say amen for, you know, God and stuff. But you can say amen for this stuff, too. That's all right. Um, all right, 1998, Slide and Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls. All right, yeah, got some fans. Very good. Uh, my Hero by the Foo Fighters. Oh, my gosh, right? I wish we could play these songs, but YouTube's like, you didn't pay for it. Whatever, gosh. Um, closing time by Semisonic. Why don't we play that every Sunday at the end of each service? That would be amazing. Oh my goodness. By the way, fun fact, the lead singer of Semisonic, uh, is one of the co-writers with Adele. So most of the Adele songs, whoop, yep, that's a, we're getting cut off. YouTube shutting us down right now. Um, Cruel Summer by Ace of Base. Yeah, they, that was the first ever cassette I ever owned was, was Ace of Base. Half of you are like, what's a cassette? I don't know. They're out there. Yeah. Um, American Woman by Lenny Kravitz. So good. Ray of Light by Madonna. That was a good album. I was into that album by Madonna. Intergalactic by Beastie Boys? Come on. Let's play that. No, we can't. Gosh darn it. I'm just going to end my sermon early so we can all just go listen to these songs and like get, get it out of our heads. Um, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing by Aerosmith. How many of y'all played it at your wedding? Anybody? No? Okay. All right. Couple. Okay. Um, Baby One More Time by Britney Spears. Um, You're Still the One by Shania Twain. That's the closest I've ever come to country music right there. I will not get any closer than Shania Twain. Uh, Getting Jiggy With It by Will Smith. Hard Knock Life by Jay-Z. Ghetto Superstar by Maya. Truly Madly Deepy by Savage Garden, who I make fun of people who like Savage Garden, but that's a great song. Uh, The Way by Fastball. Fastball. (laughs) 
This, I'm going to say this one, and those of you who are not familiar with 90 music, 90s music, are, your respect is going to immediately go down for all of us. But the song Tub Thumping by Chumbawamba. <laughs> That's the goofiest thing. Uh, you can make fun of it, but you all have heard it, and, and it's out there. Um, another two songs uh, by Third Eye Blind, Semi-Trim Life and How's it's gonna, How It's Gonna Be. And then finally, My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion. I actually cut some from my list. You want me to read? No, we, we don't have time. We got we a whole lot of other stuff to talk about. Anyway, so much good music from 19, 1980. I hope all those songs stay stuck in your head because they live in my head constantly. And now that we're all sufficiently distracted, let's talk about what we're supposed to talk about in the series. Um, there are a lot of things that get stuck in our head. Not just music, not just song lyrics. There are a lot of things that get stuck in our head. And part of that is the capacity of the human brain is unreal. It's believed, based on a bunch of studies, that the memory capacity of the human brain is equal to 2.5 petabytes, which is 2,560 terabytes, which is 2.5 million gigabytes. The largest laptop hard drive that's available to buy by consumers is about 20 terabytes, and that's enormous. None of us have enough photos on our computer that we need 20 terabytes, which means the human brain's memory capacity is over 100 times more powerful than the largest memory personal computer in existence. That is a lot of space for things to get stuck in our head. Every word that has been said to us, every dumb Burger King jingle that played during the Super Bowl, Every phrase that you've ever heard, every quote you've ever read, every thought that has ever occurred to us over the course of our entire lives has the possibility, has the capacity to get stuck in our heads. And they don't just stay there. They don't just live in the back room and we think of them when we're trying to remember why we walked into a room or why we opened the closet door. The thoughts that we have can and often do determine our words and our actions and our futures and our relationships. Every opinion, every physical movement, every word spoken to someone else all begin with this supercomputer between our ears. Now, that's obviously amazing. And I mean, that's the way God created us. And there's just a, a like unbelievable capacity for good based on the, the brain, the unbelievable uh, computer that God has put in between our ears. That means that we like can remember scripture and memorize God's word and absorb it like into our spirits and our souls. It means we can remember ways that we were encouraged and loved. We can remember marked moments where God showed up or somebody loved us in a way that might literally have changed the trajectory of our lives. But that also means when something destructive or deceitful or painful gets stuck in our heads, the results can be devastating. This is why counseling is so important, especially counseling for things like trauma. Because trauma is literally something that gets so lodged in our minds that when we experience anything triggering or similar to that original trauma, the emotion and reaction that we feel is equal in intensity to the first time we went through it. Because our brain has the capacity to hold that. Last week, John taught us about the power of taking every thought captive and making it obedient to Christ. This is from 2 Corinthians 10. We read last week, says, We demolish every argument and every pretension that sets itself against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, this isn't a subtle suggestion. It's not just like a self-help concept to consider. This is absolutely necessary, especially for those of us, if you would consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this is vitally important. 
to claim the power of Jesus over every single thought that we have simply because of the sheer volume of thoughts that can live in our minds. It requires this practice, capturing every single thought and making it obedient to Christ. Last week, we talked about the thought that might get stuck in our heads, which is, I can't change my thought patterns. And again, John, John taught us that based on Scripture, based on the power of the Holy Spirit, we can change our thoughts. And this week, I want to talk about another thought that has the tendency to play on repeat in our minds, and the thought is this, is I'm alone. Um, despite living in a world where we're constantly surrounded by people, a world we, we are connected to billions of people around the globe quite literally at our fingertips. A world where the, the lives and opinions and important moments of each person is broadcast to the entire globe. The thought, I'm alone, can so often live in our heads for years and decades and lifetimes. Now there's two ways I want to talk about how this thought might plague us. Two ways that this thought of I'm alone might negatively impact our day-to-day. The first is when we think we're alone in our pain and our struggles. The things that we're dealing with, whether it be life situationally or internally. But every single day, billions of people experience the difficulty of life. And as hard as that is sometimes, we live it thinking, I'm alone in this. I'm the only one going through this. I got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I got to read these nine self-help books and I got to figure it out because this is me, myself, and I that has to get through this battle. And no matter who you are, no matter what season of life you find yourself in, there are so many ways that this thought of I'm alone in this can permeate your thoughts and paralyze your actions. You might think I'm alone in my stress as a parent and some days just wanting to tap out. I'm alone in the crushing pressure of my job. I'm alone in my temptations of gossip or lust or greed. I'm alone in my use of alcohol or drugs or food or gambling or shopping to simply try to cope and get through another day. I'm alone in my loneliness. I'm alone in my depression. I'm alone in how angry I feel all the time. I'm alone in my overwhelming anxiety. I'm alone in the instability and struggle in my marriage. That's up to me to fix. Can't talk to anybody about that. We've got to figure it out internally. I'm alone in the doubting of my faith and my anger and doubt against the Lord. And again, these things can be destructive and erode like your heart and joy and peace and so painful. But I would argue as if not more painful is when we live with those struggles and pain and difficulty constantly thinking I'm alone in this. Because when we think we're alone, then these pains and struggles say, stay hidden and they fester and grow and simply cause more damage and more pain day after day after day after day after day. And yet, the irony is every single one of us is going through these things. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. So if you have trouble in your life, it means A, you're alive, and B, you're on planet Earth. Those are good things. The only planet so far we know that can support life. So we're all going to experience trouble. Every single one of us 
can go through these things. And the irony about like our human perspective is we all have this idea that we have to keep our pain and keep our struggles inside, sugarcoat it, make it make it look better on the outside. How are you doing? Great. How are you? Great. Okay. <laughs> and then we go home and like hurt. I get it. You know, I've done it for years and years and years. We do that. But the irony is that's the way we all live. And yet when we hear somebody open up and admit about the pain and struggles of their life, we have so much respect for that. We're so inspired by the stories, some of which you've seen here at Heartland, of people who were like broken or devastated and found God and God redeemed them and community redeemed them and now they're experiencing the life that God meant them to live. We respond to that. We don't respect people who like pretend everything's perfect their whole life because we're like, that's not real. There's no way that's, that's possible. I'm going to do it, but there's no way that that's, that's real. That, that can't do it, right? And then somebody opens up in the real, and we just re- respond to that so deeply. One of my greatest joys over the past couple of years as I've walked through recovery um, for alcohol abuse that, that I abused for almost a, a whole year every single night, one of my great joys is uh, meeting men and women uh, and students, people who are, are committing to walk through recovery. And without a doubt, um, so many times you'll hear this story. You'll hear somebody say, I was alone in this. I was alone in my struggle. I was the only one who could deal with this. And then I went to a meeting. I went to a group. I met coffee, you know, somebody for coffee. And I listened to them tell their story. And my thought was, how does this stranger know my story verbatim? They're like, I sit in a group and somebody tells their story. And I'm like, I can't be honest and real. They're honest and real. I'm like, wait a minute. That's exactly what I'm going through. A long time ago, I heard a pastor who I admire say something I've never forgot. He said, the two most powerful words in the English language are, me too. Because for the first time, when we hear the phrase, me too, we realize, I'm not alone. And we see that phrase, I'm alone, for the lie that it truly is. Through Solomon, God teaches us in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. Someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Now, you might have heard this passage before. It's a like, really amazing vision of community and the power of community. But listen to the scenarios that this passage is talking about. It's talking about things like falling, being freezing cold, fighting in a battle, and being broken. This is why it's important to have people in our lives. This isn't about like make sure you have people to watch the game with, do yoga with, you know, whatever the case may be. This is like, hey, when you are facing things like being broken and frozen and paralyzed and alone and fighting in a battle... This is when the phrase, me too, can be incredibly powerful because suddenly you're not battling, you're not fighting, you're not freezing, you're not standing alone. For those of you who hear this thought in your head, my challenge for you is to seek community. Not just people, not just friends, but true community. People who you can be real with, who are going to be real with you, And then suddenly you will not be alone in your struggle because you'll be shocked and surprised how somebody else's story, it can be almost exactly like yours. So go to a meeting, join a group, schedule a lunch or coffee, take a trip to or with someone, reach out, seek, reject the lie that you are not alone and find people that you can be real with so that you don't have to do it alone because you're not. Now, for those of you who might be in community but still feel this, You like have close friends, you're in a group, but you still feel this. My challenge to you is take the extremely courageous and humble step to be fully transparent. 
to be fully open. And I know what you're thinking, and I know what you're going to think in that moment when you're sitting in the living room, when you're sitting around the table here on a Sunday night. You're going to think, I can't open up about this. This is so embarrassing. This is so awkward. Like, people are going to, I'm going to be just cast out of the group, like right there, right then. But I almost guarantee you, when you tell your story, you will hear, hey, me too. Because we are all going through pain. We are all going through struggles. We are all going through difficulty. And according to God, you are not meant to do it alone. That's probably one of the quickest ways to make it worse. I don't know who invented this phrase, pull myself up by my bootstraps. That doesn't work. You just get tighter boots. You know, I'm like, I can't pull myself out. My boots are just on better. I don't even wear boots, okay? I can't pull myself up by my Nikes. That doesn't work. This is the way we were meant to live. You are not alone in your pain. You are not alone in your struggle. And when you reach out, when you connect with people, you will hear the words, me too. And suddenly, you have two or three or more at your back. And that's the way that we were meant to live. But there's another way uh, that we might think that we're alone. And that is when we feel like God is not with us. We feel alone even from God. And to talk about this, I'm going to tell you a story of something I went through. Uh, those of you who've been around Heartland for a while, I've told this story before, so forgive me that you're, you're hearing kind of a repeat part, but uh, this was a, a, a season of my life that marked me significantly, and I've never been the same since, and I always want to look for opportunities to share it. Uh, so for those of you that know uh, maybe my story, you don't know my story, I grew up as a Christian. Like from, I was like a fetal Christian. I just came out instantly Christian. Just, you know, like Christian parents, Christian household, Christian music, which was terrible back in the 90s. It's like 1998, I was like, what's this secular evil stuff? This is way better than whatever else this did before. <laughs> so Christian, I did, I was homeschooled my whole life, which is why I'm so pale. Um, so I, I, uh, so I even had Christian school curriculum. It was like, how many burning bushes plus three burning bushes? You know, it was like the Bible incorporated. And I was like, is this what math is? I don't understand. So Christian school, like whole life, I, I mean, I went to church since I was a very young child. I volunteered since I was the age of like nine at church. Uh, I did like internships and, and staff positions. I just was constantly surrounded by church and I loved it. I like, I knew who God was. I knew he loved me. I surrendered my life to Jesus. I knew he had died for my sins. I received his gift. I mean, I took communion. I was taught to tithe like 10% from when I was a little kid and I'd get my like $10 allowance and like $1 would go in the little basket at church. I think I was taught to do that ever since I was a young kid. And again, it was real. I knew God. I loved him until I was about 18 years old and suddenly it felt like overnight God left. Felt like he just packed up and booked it out of there because I, he was not with me anymore. Again, I've been surrounded by just like Christian and Christianity and God my entire life. And I absolutely had had experience of sensing God's presence and hearing his voice and experiencing him like in worship and scripture and community and all of the above. And then suddenly it was like, he gone. And it began really this uh, downward journey into a spiritual depression for me. It was like this deep spiritual funk that I found myself in experiencing life without God's presence for the first time ever. And I went through all these stages of grief as I tried to cope with it. First, I denied it. And so I faked it. So I, you know, would raise my hands in worship and pretend I was really passionate about it. And my youth pastor would be like, hey, well, how was the retreat? And I'm like, man, God totally moved. It was amazing. And then I'd go home and journal like, God, where the heck were you? Why didn't I experience you? And yet all my friends did. Then I got angry. I just got ticked. I was like, Lord, I devoted my life to you. 
the first 20 decades, 20 years of my life almost, and then you're just going to leave? Like, who does that? Then I tried bargaining. I was like, Lord, if I read this much scripture, this much prayer, you know, evangelize, the, you know, I was just like, if I do all this, then will you come back? Then will you show up? I was insecure. Like, was God mad? Did I do something? Did I not do something? I started doubting. Was God ever there in the first place? Was I just like duped this whole entire time? And then I just felt incredibly alone, incredibly lonely. Again, for the first time in my life, because God was no longer with me. The thought that I'm alone wasn't just a, a whisper in my mind temporarily. It was a screaming billboard that took up permanent residence right in the forefront of my brain. And I came real close to just giving up. I was real close to just being like, Lord, forget you, forget this, I'm out. Like, if I'm going to give my whole life to this and then you're just going to peace out, why in the world would I stick around? This is stupid. I felt abandoned, isolated, totally alone. I probably would have stayed there for a long, long time until one day uh, when I was in Kansas City. Patrick Mahomes wasn't there yet, so it had nothing to do with him. Um, so uh, this was when I was 19 or 20, so it was a couple years later, and I, I was going with some friends and family to a conference in Kansas City. It was called One Thing, and it was a uh, 12-hour worship set from, uh, on December 31st from noon to midnight. So we were going to like worship, worship into the new year. Sounds really cool. If you're, if like me, sometimes where you're in a church service and you're like, how many more songs are they going to do? This was not the service to go to because you're like, oh, nine more hours. Okay, great. We're committing to it. Um, I mainly went just because my friends and my family were going. That was really the only, only reason I wanted to, I didn't even really want to go, but I was like, all right, I'll go hang out with my friends and family and we'll, we'll hang out with them. That'll be fun. But internally, I was just dreading it. Um, the whole experience was this incredibly passionate, powerful, energetic conference with tens of thousands of people and students from around the country all praising God except for me. It was in this enormous arena with, again, thousands and thousands of people and there was like worship and people raising their hands and weeping, falling to their knees, praying passionately for each other, dancing, crying, all like all clearly having this incredible experience in the presence of God. And then there was me like in the center of the row, hands in my pockets, shoulders kind of hunched going, what am I missing that God is all over here except here. I stood there, I, I felt like defeated. I felt, again, this was where I was really, really close to giving up. I kept making excuses to like go to the bathroom and then people were like, is your bladder okay? Like I was, I was like, I just don't want to be here. So anyway, so it's, this is happening. So in the middle of this, uh, there was a, a friend who was a mentor of mine um, and she was down the aisle and she kind of caught my eye and she motioned for me to follow her out. And I was like, great, can't wait to get out of here. Let's do it. Um, so we walked out, we, and there was a cafeteria area where there was some food, and so we sat down. I just like slumped at this table. Again, I was just feeling just awful. Hated, hated being there. And uh, she looked at me, and the question she asked like shocked me, because it was the first time anybody had ever asked me. First time I probably really clearly understood what was going on. Uh, but she said, Dugan, uh, can you not feel God? And I had to like stop this well of emotion of just hitting the nail on the head. And I considered lying for a minute, but I was just so tired. And I said, no. And I was like, and I have not for a while. She said, I thought so. And I want you to read something. She pulled out her Bible. She flipped uh, to a page and she slid it across to me. And she said, I want you to read this, which I'm going to read for you now. This is in Luke 24. Uh, this is a moment where after Jesus was crucified and resurrected, but nobody knew about it. Or not many people knew about it yet. He hadn't made himself like uh, appear to all the disciples or publicly yet. So he was resurrected, death, sin, darkness, conquered, all that kind of thing. But nobody knew about it yet. And then this happens. 
Uh, that same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as he walked along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there in the last few days. This is the biblical equivalent of, do you live under a rock? That's what the Bible would say. <laughs> Jesus, I love this. What things? <laughs> the things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. They said he was a prophet, did powerful miracles. He was a prophet, not Messiah. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped, past tense, he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, the Torah, and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus spent the whole lot connecting the dots of why what happened to Jesus to the Messiah, which was actually him, was predicted to happen as part of God's plan. Uh, by the time they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey, Jesus acted as if he was going on, which is hilarious to me. He's like, all right, peace out, guys. I'm like, who is, who is that guy? But they begged him, stay with us since it's getting late. So we went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. They were like, this is familiar. Suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And at that moment, he disappeared. <laughs> I don't know why that happened. It's quite the twist of the story. They're like, Jesus, what? Where'd he go? What the? <laughs> Just he like threw like magic potion, you know, like the rest of development style. All right, so we're going to come back uh, to some of that account. But just real quick, I, we got to talk about uh, emotions, first of all. We as a, a culture, we as a society, we love emotions. We love feeling the good ones, and we do everything we can to avoid feeling the bad ones. In fact, a lot of us base many of our decisions on how we feel. Love is a very good example of this. Sometimes we feel love. We feel that, that's why we say, oh, I fell in. I, I couldn't help it. I fell into this bucket of love emotion, and I fell into it. And this like, determines a lot of our decisions. And then sometimes we like, I fell out of it. I jumped out of the bucket against my own will, and now I feel differently, so I'm going to make different decisions. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with love. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with chemistry in a relationship. That's wonderful. However, when we begin to let our emotions determine our true happiness, our true decisions, our true opinions, and the choices we make, we are putting our faith and trust into something very unreliable. Emotions are fragile. They can change in a split second. If you've ever watched a sports game, you know what I'm talking about. Just go from elation to I'm ending it all right now. The videos of, of uh, Eagles fans breaking their TVs was my favorite pastime. The Sunday after the Super Bowl, poor people. Okay, emotions are fragile. Emotions are temporary. Nobody has ever experienced the same emotion forever for their entire life. When I was 12, I was convinced I was going to marry this girl I was in love with. Just I wrote it, all, told my friends, and uh, yeah, I did not marry her, and thank the Lord I didn't do that. Emotions are not within our control a lot of times. Emotions are determined by outside circumstances. 
When we experience something causing us to feel, our brain releases a chemical that makes us feel something based on outside stimuli or something that occurs to us. This is not in our control. Just like we can't drink six cups of coffee or take a Tylenol PM and not be affected by it, emotions happen to us. We are not in control of them. Which, side note, this is why things like the joy of the Lord and peace that passes understanding is so powerful because God says, I can give you these internal joy, this internal peace, despite what you might be feeling. And finally, emotions sometimes can just be straight up wrong. They can just be incorrect. Now, of course, they're real maybe in the moment for you, but in general, they're wrong. I, once I, Lindsay and I had just gotten married. We'd only been married like a year or two. Um, and I was doing laundry in our house because I'm, you know, the perfect husband. And um, so we had a, in our house, we had a basement and Lindsay's an artist. And so she was painting and she had headphones on. She had like her paint scrubs on and uh, the laundry room was down there. And so I brought a basket of laundry down and her back was to me and she was like painting and bopping with her headphones. And I had this moment where I just felt so much love for my wife in that moment. I was like, look how cute she is, like doing her thing that God gifted her to do and wearing her scrubs. And I still think she's hot, like wearing this stuff and headphones on. And so I'm standing there and then Lindsay, out of the corner of her eyes, sees a dark shadowy figure standing in the basement and she went ah what are you doing you scared and just like broke down weeping because i don't know why she was like there's murderers in the basement i don't think that was a thing but she had this like intense moment of fear and anger and sadness and it was i was like i'm so sorry i was just doing the okay i'll go upstairs and i went upstairs and i just remember thinking like that was not the right thing to feel i was feeling this like love and connection moment you were in your zone and then all of a sudden you felt fear and again it was real for her in that moment but situationally objectively that was not the right emotion to feel emotions can be wrong we cannot control them they're fragile they're temporary Now, again, I'm not saying emotions are bad. Please hear me. We are created in God's image, who gave us the gift of emotions. They are a wonderful blessing. God himself is described as feeling emotions, such as jealousy or passion or love or anger. But again, when we determine our choices and our decisions by how we feel, that's the wrong way to make decisions. And God is so much bigger than what we feel. God's presence is not determined by how you feel. Of course, there will be moments when we experience positive emotions due to God's presence. That happens all the time, and it's wonderful. But then what happens when we don't feel that emotion, our deductive reasoning thinks, okay, God's presence, I feel this emotion. I don't feel this emotion means God's not present. That's not the right equation because God is so much bigger. I want to look at the account in Emmaus again. There's this really weird line. It's kind of a small one. Maybe you caught it. Uh, But it says they're walking. Jesus showed up in verse 16. It says, but God kept them from recognizing him. This was divine intervention to prevent the followers of Jesus of recognizing Jesus. And this was the truth that hit me with a two-by-four right over my head in the, at this table in Kansas City, this thought that I might not feel God, but that doesn't mean he's not with me. That was the first time I had ever had that thought, that just because I can't feel God is not a determining factor of whether he is present with me or not. In fact, throughout Scripture, God promises the exact opposite. Early on in Deuteronomy, or like one of the first five books of the Bible, says the Lord, he's the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. A few books later in Joshua, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor dismayed. For the Lord God is with you wherever you go. Jesus himself says, sure, be sure of this. I am with you always, always. 
except when you don't feel me. No, no, no. Always, even to the end of the age. So despite what we feel, God is always present. But the question then uh, we need to ask, especially in this passage, is why? Like, why? Why? If I mean, emotions are good, and God, God's presence shows up, and we feel these positive emotions. Why? Why? Why do we? Why do we not feel them? In fact, according to this passage, why in the world would God Himself prevent His own followers from recognizing the Messiah? Well, there's another passage, a few verses later, verse 27, that says this. It says, Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Again, as I mentioned before, this was Jesus teaching his disciples from the scriptures, from Torah, from the book of the prophets, about all the things promising the coming Messiah so they could make the connections. And the, the, the point that I had to understand is that had they recognized Jesus' presence, they would have been way too distracted to listen to anything he was saying. And so there are times when God might prevent us from feeling him so he can speak to us. Because God's presence is so powerful and wonderful and emotionally charged, it's just like this incredible thing, sometimes God might prevent you from knowing emotionally he is with you because he wants to speak some deep truths to you. And as wonderful as his presence is, he knows it will be too distracting for you to hear when he speaks. There might be times in our life when God chooses to hide himself from us. He's not gone. He's not far away. He's still 100% present. But somehow God is powerful enough that he can actually prevent us from experiencing and sensing his extremely powerful presence. And he's not doing this out of punishment. He's not doing this because we've done something wrong or not done something right. In fact, when he does it, it's a blessing because God's like, I want to speak deep truth to you. I want to teach you some things, but I need to hide my presence because it's so powerful and so wonderful. You're all going to be too distracted to get it. This is why so many times the disciples, when Jesus would say something, they're like, I don't understand what he means. And when we read it, we're like, duh, come on, get it. But it's like Jesus like raising people from the dead, feeding 5,000. He's cruising on water. They're so distracted. They're like, did he say something? I don't know, but he just walked on water, bro. I just, I don't understand what he's talking about, but can we walk on water? You think that's something we can do? I mean, I had a surfboard, but I don't think I need it anymore because we just cruise on the water they were so distracted by all the miracles they couldn't hear what he was saying and that's a wonderful season to be in so first of all if you're in a season where god's presence is like just like at the forefront of everything you're going through we play a worship song and you're like boom i'm in the throne room you're driving in your car god's like presence is there you're at work you feel him so powerfully you're at home your prayer god's like that's awesome like, enjoy that, appreciate that, worship God, use that to encourage other people and pray for them as he brings them to mind. Like, revel in that season, because that's really, really wonderful. But, if you find yourself in a season where you don't feel God, and maybe you haven't felt him in a long time, and you've wondered, you've thought, you've believed, God is not with me, I'm alone, and it might have caused you to distance yourself from him, distance yourself from the people in your life, I want to encourage you and for you to understand two things. One, he is with you always. And just because you can't feel him doesn't mean he's not there. He is way, way bigger than what we might feel. And the second thing is I want to encourage you and say God might be intentionally hiding his presence from you because he wants to speak to you. And if that's you, just like was told me at this uh, cafeteria table in Kansas City, 
The advice my mentor gave me was to quiet myself and listen. Get a journal or laptop and simply sit and listen and write what I sensed God speaking to me. Instead of being distracted and annoyed and angry and trying everything I possibly could to get that feeling back, instead, I quieted myself and I listened. So I started in Kansas City. Well, all of a sudden, I felt so freed that I didn't have to walk back into this worship uh, experience and then pretend like I was having a good time. Instead, I walked back in, I grabbed a notebook, and I went to the back of the room, I sat against the wall, and then I just listened. And I was like, Lord, I'm not feeling anything, but I'm going to listen, and I'm going to write down what I believe you're speaking. And I just like wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And then coming home from that experience, it's not like I got home and God's like, now here's my presence. That didn't happen. I got home, and then it was years it was a process of years and years where every single morning I would wake up and I'd set aside time to sit and listen and write. And I didn't feel, there was no emotion, but I sat and I listened. And the things that God spoke to me during that season changed the course of my life, no doubt. And so that's what I would encourage you to do as well. Because just because we can't feel God doesn't mean He's not speaking. I remember, I, I just... I close with this story because I've never forgotten this. Uh, but when my daughter Ava was really young, she was like an infant, and uh, she was at the age where you, uh, they were like a ladybug where you put them on their back and they can't do anything, just flail about. Um, and so I was home alone with her, and you know we were hanging out and, and, and doing stuff. And so I had to go, I had to step in another room to do something. So I put her in the center of our king-size bed. Don't call DCFS. I was real careful. But this was also like 10 years ago. So I put her in the center of our king-size bed, knowing she couldn't go anywhere because I had to step into the other room and do so. And after a minute, after I had stepped out, she started crying. And I was like, I couldn't like walk away from what I was doing. So I just had to say, I was like, Ava, honey, I'll be right there, baby. And the minute I, I talked, she like perked up and stopped crying. And then I stopped talking and she started crying. And I'm like, Ava, baby, I love you, honey. I'm going to be there in just a few minutes. I'll be right there. And so I just kept talking the entire time because once I talked, she calmed down and she wasn't crying anymore. And I remember I walked in, I picked her up, we had this moment, and I just so clearly God was like, Dugan, sometimes this is what I do with you. Where I'm not gone. You know, you, might, you can't see me, you can't feel me, but if you listen, you're going to hear my voice because I'm speaking directly to you. So, for the thought that might live in your brain and has for a long time, I'm alone. I'm alone in my pain. I'm alone in my struggles. Man, no, you're not. Reach out. Listen for the phrase, me too, because a lot of people are going to say it. And if you've ever thought, I'm alone, God's not with me, he promises his presence. In fact, throughout Scripture, he promises his presence through life's difficult times as much, if not more, than life's good times. So he is with you. And he is way bigger than your emotions. And if you're in that season, I encourage you to quiet yourself and listen because he's speaking directly to you. Let's close in prayer. Uh, Lord God, I thank you for the promise that you're with us. In fact, so many of your promises, Lord, um, you're very clear to say, this will be difficult, but I'm with you. You don't say you're going to fix it immediately, you're going to flip a switch or shoot your genie finger and, and make everything better. God, you say there will be pain. There will be difficulty. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death, but I am with you. We are not alone. God, for those of us um, who feel alone in our pain and our struggles, I pray for the incredible courage and humility that it might take to reach out, join a group, meet a friend, 
have a conversation, maybe with somebody we've known for a long time, but this will be the first time that we're open and real and honest. And God, for those of us that might not feel you, um, that can be a discouraging, difficult, painful season because we want to feel you. We want to experience you. And yet, I believe it's because of your love that sometimes you prevent us from feeling you so that you can speak deep truths to us. And so, God, I pray that we would hear your voice crystal clear. The things that you've been speaking to our hearts and our spirits, we would hear, we would remember, we would cement in our brains, we would replace the thought, I'm alone, with I am never alone. And God is always with me. And he's speaking to me. And I pray this all in your name. Amen.